Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Thank you all for making it. We're going to be the number one media conglomerate in the world. The key here is act like a happy family. We're the Osbournes, and I'm Daddy fucking Warbucks, okay? I always wanted one of you kids to take over. People would do well to remember there's going to be a new sheriff in town. Here's to us. Welcome back to Still Watching Succession, an unofficial podcast about the HBO series Succession. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you're just joining us for the first time, what we do every week on Still Watching is we break down the latest episode of our current like sort of TV obsession. Right now we are in the midst, in right smack dab in the middle of Succession on HBO. We are talking about season two, episode five, Turnhaven. Uh, which is when the Roys met the Pierces. Uh, great episode of television. So we will be talking all about that, but spoiling nothing yeah. beyond that because we haven't seen it. So there you go. I, I love when this show just like knows what we want. Do you know what I mean? It's yes. like, like when you hear about this, oh, the Pierce family, it's like, oh, that'd be kind of interesting to meet the Pierce family. It's like, they're like, don't worry. There's going to be a whole episode where they go to another mansion and meet the other other people, like and it's not who just are one, yeah, it's who are also them. who are weird and like bad in their own way. Like I just like it's very, um, it's just very satisfying. It's great. It's perfect. I cringed a lot because I recognize maybe a little bit of myself, but definitely people I grew up with. I don't recognize people I grew up with in the Roys, but I do with the Pierces. So sure. it's, yeah. uh, here we go. <laughs> the like Shakespeare quoting, uh, Pierces. So what we've been doing the last couple episodes is, is sort of running down our power players, uh, in the episode and sort of seeing who's on top, who's on the bottom. We love starting the top and ending on the bottom because it's fun to end with the losers. Um, and this week we've got a, a, a some Pierces in the mix. Uh, with the Roys, as we mentioned. Before we get to that, though, I did want to, uh, read a quick email from a listener. We, you can email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. And, uh, we would, we would love to hear your thoughts on, on all of this. Um, we got a couple emails. I'm just going to conflate a couple emails. We got an email from Juliana and an email from, uh, Catherine about, uh, the character of Gil. One, um, uh, Catherine was interested in a shot in episode two of the season where Gil is pulling Shiv aside to talk to her about uh, becoming chief of staff. And uh, he puts his hand near her shoulder, but ultimately lands on the small of her back. Shiv doesn't seem to clock this, but the camera definitely does. Um, and then uh, Juliana writes in about what she calls um, Shiv's breakup, 
where I think Juliana's just responding to what we were, which is like Shiv sort of cutting ties with Gil, uh, who's this Bernie Sanders S figure, right, that she was working for, seemed very like clumsily, weirdly done. And um Juliana points out that it was done in front of Nate. So she's like, maybe this is like some weird long play from Shiv. Um, I don't think it is. I think this episode really proves to us, you know, when we see Shiv say, like, I really want this to Tom, like, it proves us that the reason that she left Gil is because like her offer, her father made her an offer she couldn't refuse, right? An offer mm-hmm. she believed. Um, so I don't know that she's like playing any kind of long game with Gil or necessarily if Gil is trying to be depicted as any kind of like, uh, sexual harasser by the, where his hand was and stuff like that. That being said, um, I've been saying all along, I really feel like this presidential campaign is going to keep cooking. Obviously we've got Connor talking a lot of politics in this episode. So I can't imagine it's the last we see of Gil. My ideal, right, is that we get Gil versus Connor. Like that seems to be like, um, a fun thing. And so I think any information we want to sort of, uh, tuck away for future about Gil that could explode on him. So maybe that hand. Uh, moving to the small of her back is a sort of Biden-esque, though it didn't hurt Biden, uh, thing to watch out for, you know, for the future of Gil's campaign. Who knows? But, um, I deeply suspect it's not the last we've seen of him. So, there you go. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. All right, so... Um, away from the politics and back to the business. We are sad to report that once again, <laughs> Logan Roy is at the top of our list. Yeah. Uh, because as he says at the end of the episode, money wins. Um, yeah. He gets everything he wants. He does not have to uh, like accede to any of Nan's requests. And, uh, he fucks over his daughter, uh, in the process, it feels like. So, um, I think there's no better example of Logan's power as when uh, Siobhan sort of like tears in her eyes, unshed tears in her eyes in the helicopter at the end is like, what happened? And he just literally goes, uh, uh, like, <laughs> doesn't bother to articulate a single word uh, to her. So yeah. there you go. Logan Roy. How many 
times in your week, let's say your average week, do you get to yell at somebody, fly your fucking whirly bird? <laughs> I mean, that, that, that won him the episode for me, just that one line. <laughs> it's true. Um, I wondered, I was wondering if that's, do Americans ever call it a whirly bird or is that like a, a Scottishism I mean, or a Britishism? I've heard it. I just like, uh, I think it, as, as a sort of joke. Yeah. Like an old timey yeah. kind of joke. I don't think people like it sincere. They're like, Oh, I have a, you know, 6 p.m. whirly bird to, to JFK. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I, um, that I love that, that, um, I read in the, the Hollywood Reporter piece that they did before the season started is, um, you know, they have all these consultants on the show and basically there are consultants, um, who like tell them how to be rich. How to act rich. And one detail that I love that Kieran Culkin uh, noted is that they were instructed not to ever duck their heads when they get in and out of a helicopter because, like, they've been stepping on and off helicopters their whole lives. And so they're not, like, they're used to it. And they're not, like, I would be, like, basically crawling towards a helicopter if I had to get on, like, under, like, whirling blades. But people who are accustomed to it would just be like, yeah, that's the blades of the copter. It's fine. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about that, watching them all kind of at the helipad on the East River. Like, I was just like, well, actors do so many crazy things. Like, they're just like riding in helicopters all the time, <laughs> or, or at least <laughs> stepping onto helicopters, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a really interesting detail. I like that. Um, there's also like, you know, in, in Logan's favor, there's that speech he sort of gives, um, when they're at the cocktail hour, uh, where he goes, I ain't no master of speechifying, and he calls himself Romans amongst you Greeks. And, uh, it's so smart. Like, mm-hmm. the way, like, it doesn't, uh, he doesn't maintain that performance all the way through, but like, even Connor is like, who's this dad? I wish this dad were our dad. You know what I mean? Like, that he's speaking their language, which he's like, oh, you, you, <laughs> you rich assholes like the classics. All right. We can do this. Um, he's speaking their language and he's, uh, you know, Aw shucksin, like basically his, his way towards a win. Uh, he, that, that mask slips and he still gets what he wants, but it's interesting to see him sort of try it on for a little while. So. Yeah. yeah. And also like, what was the power dynamic in history in terms of like Romans and Greeks? Like, you know, the, the Romans, you know, uh, came after the, the, the Greeks. They, they stole their gods, renamed them, built an empire. You know, like I think yeah. he's, he's also being like, you know, just so you know, you guys are kind of going the way of the dodo. I am the conqueror. And yes, I maybe not be as like erudite or whatever. I'm maybe a little crass or a little more boorish, but like I'm still the fucking Romans. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we get, um, I mean, I, we, we don't have, um, spoiler, we don't have Marsha on our list. Maybe we should, but, but we should probably talk about Marsha, um, in this episode in the context of, of Logan, I suppose, which is, um, her little rebellions that she's sort of, not to, not to, um, infantilize them, but like, uh, you know, he, he instructs everyone not to drink that much. She's like, no, I'm, I'm gonna have as much wine as I want. Thank you very much. And, uh, I like the way that Nan, likes you know and she's like if you have a whole what a whole year i couldn't tell you my life and all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff like that and i like how nan is like really impressed by her and all of that and i just feel like marcia was watching the shiv thing and watching all of this and sort of marcia is always operating on something at some level you know so 
Yeah, I thought it was, I thought, I, 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 for, part of me was like, I don't really know where this came from with her characterization. Like, why would she be acting out like this? It's such a crucial thing. But like, I also kind of did get it. Like, you know, uh, she, you know, she, they have that kind of private exchange in, in the room where she's like, well, I'm glad that I like got a good grade as long as, you know, along with all the other students or whatever it was, you know, like, and I, I, I can understand like her being thrown into that kind of deal-making context and she's treated as this kind of, you know, arm of Logan and not an actual person, like, yeah, why she would um, maybe take to the bottle <laughs> and, and speak her, her piece. <laughs> well, I think she like, I think she sniffs the shiv thing because you can't, you cannot get anything past Marsha is the point, right? right? And so in the earlier episode when like shiv comes over and Marsha's trying to like be in on the conversation and Logan sends her away, like I think she sniffs the shiv thing. And even though the shiv thing seems to explode in this episode, um, that is something that Marsha has like a very close eye on. And the, they said, you know, sexist as it may be, they set up that dynamic in the first season where like Shiv and Marsha specifically are sort of like coming to blows. And I think one of the things that they're referencing, um, I can't remember if I talked about this in the podcast already, but the, the whole like, um, Redstone family thing and how, uh, Sherry Redstone, Summer, Summer Redstone's daughter basically like, kicked his girlfriends out of the house. It was like this whole, this whole thing between his daughter, this media mogul's daughter and his girlfriends. And like, Marsha is not like some, and he was living with like multiple girlfriends and they seemed very like gold dicky. Marsha does not seem, she's not in that power position, but that conflict between daughter and stepmother, um, you know, and, and Marsha like cold, Shiv, uh, what, and a grateful bitch? Something awful last season. So, like, I don't know. It's a very, that particular dynamic is one to sort of keep an eye on, I think. So, for sure. Yeah. There you go. All right. Uh, number two, ro- climbing, rocketing up the charts, uh, is Kendall Roy. Kendall got a big win this week. And the way he got it, I feel like was just being himself. Which is kind of... Yeah, just be yourself, guys. Just do as much coke as you need. Drink however much Grey Goose as you need. And then shit in whatever bed you want. Um, But, I mean, what's true is when, like, Naomi's the key to bringing Nan around. Kendall yeah. seemed to convince Naomi. And you, one of my... My favorite shot of the episode is when they're in that final meeting with Rhea, Shiv, Nan, and Jerry, and Logan, and Kendall, uh, and... Nan says something about like, you know, well, Naomi had a talk with me and blah, blah. And the camera's just on Kendall and he doesn't even really look up. He just has like a slight smile. And like, well, it's possible that he was somewhat manipulating Naomi when they're, when he was talking about like, think of this as your ticket out. Um, this is a, this is a good for you. You can just get out. Uh, well, he's like slightly working her in that context. He's, they also seem to, genuinely have this addiction connection um that doesn't feel completely put on so i don't know it's it's a good episode for kendall well yeah and you know the way that like seemingly naomi you know uh has uh what is it her aunt i guess would it be nan's ear um yeah you know though she is this kind of penitent you know trying to clean up her act kind of person i mean that's so similar to to Kendall and his father. So, um, yeah, I think same saw same. And like, I think that that is kind of the, I don't know, I guess the sort of logic of this show and these characters is 
use what you have. And perversely, mm. that, you know, quote unquote brokenness or uh, certainly not that being an addict is to be a broken person at all, but you know, that, that sort of that, that, that trial, that hardship, that predilection, I guess, you know, strangely can be used, I suppose, as an asset, um, if you are willing to, uh, you know, follow it down that path. Yeah, it's, I really love this, um, new character of, of Naomi Pierce, who we met sort of, she's the, she's the person who Roman tried to call in an earlier episode. She's friends with Tabitha, his girlfriend, uh, non-sexual partner, Tabitha, um, played by Annabelle Dexter Jones, uh, who's great. I think she's fantastic mm-hmm. in this part. Um, but uh, the, this idea that she sort of recognized, saw immediately who Kendall was when he walked in is um, something powerful. I really liked the Kendall, uh, Rhea dynamic in the first season, his ex-wife, but it is always this sort of like for him, this like coming apologizing hat in hand sort of dynamic with like he's fucked up so irrevocably with Rhea with his kids that he's just constantly on the back foot and this idea that he you know maybe not happily ever after but you know for now for a few episodes for whatever he has found this like kindred in this other person is is a really fun thing for the writers to have done yeah I wonder if she'll come back I, I hope so because I, I, I I'm intrigued I feel like she will and once again this is no spoilers my my concern, I'll tell you my concern and then I'll tell you why I'm not concerned about my concern. My concern is that Naomi is the kind of character where she shows up and she and Ken love this connection and it's this whole thing. And then she like ODs. She's Kristen then, Ritter on Breaking Bad. Exactly. Exactly what I thought. And then Kendall learns a lesson of some kind. Um, so that's, that, that's what a TV show might do with this character. I, the reason I don't I hope and think that Succession is not going to do that with this character is because what another TV show might do also is like have Kendall like uh, crash that helicopter because it would be like funny and a spectacle and whatever. And oh, my God, how crazy. Um, and they can like blame it on something else. But they were like, no, like, like, let's have the danger of that. Right. Like he's turning on. You're like, what, what the fuck are these high drunk fucks going to do? Like, what are they going to do here? And then they like, don't. And that's, um, yeah, he literally shits the bed, but like, it could have been much, much hackier and worse. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I, I really liked it. Um, I also love, I got to shout out Jeremy Strong as Kendall, his reaction when, uh, Naomi reads hers, gives her a bit of Shakespeare and he goes, that was awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Genuine. So dumb. Like he's genuine, but also just sort of like, she says this like beautiful piece of Shakespeare. He's like, that was awesome. Like, <laughs> way to go, bro. Um, all right. Number three on the list, um, is our girl, Jerry. Uh, Richard, do you want to say why Jerry deserves the number three slot on our list? Well, I guess, suppose because she's further developed her, you know, sort of, um, let's say unconventional, uh, relationship with Roman, which is interesting. I think it's a real coup for, you know, in a metatextual sense, Jerry's character, you know, it's like, Oh, cool. like, look, she's getting interesting new things to do. Um, so I think that's good, but you know, she also, she was brought into that final meeting with Nan. Like she is still firmly at the center of all of this, even if she's playing a sort of quieter, seemingly more passive role. Yeah. And I just really like, we got a little bit of a hint of a smile from her in last week's episode when she had this 
call with Roman, but that we get to see more of like how this is sort of fun for her, fun for her, you know, yeah, like totally. intriguing and curious and fun and exciting. Um, so I'm, I'm really into Jerry enjoying herself, um, in all of this. And what seems clear from the context of this episode is that she and Roman have been like having these calls ongoing. Uh, the, I think he was away. His training is supposed to be six weeks. I don't know if he's like done the whole training. I think he has. So like that they've been doing this for six weeks, um, is, longer than a lot of my relationships at last day. No, I'm <laughs> like, it's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, so there we go. Jerry, yeah. And how, how satisfying it must be to have one of the Roy's want you to tell them what a piece of shit they are. Yes. She can just like unleash all the mm-hmm. things she's, uh, pent up for years. All right. Uh, number four is a shared spot for, for Rhea Jarrell and Nan Pierce. Uh, the amazing Cherry Jones. I just like, this is just, Perfect. The, the costuming, they, the hair. Yes. What does yes. she say? Thank you for coming to our weird little home. And yeah. it's this like palace, but I, but that waspy old northeastern money uh-huh. way of like, oh, this old pile of brick, you know, whatever, you know, yeah. driving yeah, yeah, the yeah. old Volvo. Like there's an old, um, Jeep Wagoneer we see in one, in one shot in this episode. Like mm-hmm. it's just, it's a very, um, as someone who has passed by that sort of not, not quite that extreme wealth, but like sort of northeastern New England wealth, like, um, it's, it's a very well observed, uh, caricature. It's perfect. My favorite, um, aspect of Nan is her relationship with her staff, right? So she, um, there's this character of Rosa, who I think is like the, the main housekeeper or what have you. Uh, and she's like, Rosa, have a drink with us. Oh, come on. You never treat yourself like, like I'm so liberal and progressive that I treat my housekeeper like she's my, oh, d- who works you so hard? Like, you know, put your feet up, you deserve it or whatever. Um, but then cup, like mirrored with that great scene where like you see Rosa and her staff slaving away in the kitchen and then Nan like brings the roast out and gets the applause and Rose is just sort of like standing in the background watching. Yeah. It's just like, it's, a beautiful portrait of someone who like is gonna take all the credit. I don't know. It's just it's uh, of a really fraught relationship that people you know yeah. with with people who have you know domestic workers essentially like like oh you know like she's part of the family but she's not you know like like mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a really interesting um, dynamic that I think you know something like Roma explored um, a lot really well. Um, you know, and, and I like that there were shots of Rosa throughout the episode, like little quick things of her just kind of observing or like turning her head and watching something happen as she's like, you know, carrying some laundry or whatever. Like I, I really, I thought that was nice. And it made me think of the cherry orchard, um, and how that play, you know, set in this old, you know, a Russian villa out in the country, uh, as basically one period of Russian, Russia, you know, ends and another begins seemingly in a more populous sort of, you know, collectivist way. Um, and the family leaves the, they have to sell the house. And the last person on stage is fears, the old butler who everyone forgot to bring with them. And he's just like, there alone in the house as they, you know, board up the windows and everything. It's, you know, it's, I mean, it's a beautiful play and a beautiful moment, but it just kind of, I feel like there was a little nod to that in this episode with, with the kind of constant shots of Rosa. I love that. That's very, uh, that's very, a very Pearson's observation <laughs> of yours. Uh, Theater degree is finally coming to use. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, yeah. So this whole, and then like, and then Ferdinand Pierce say something like, money is a social construct. Mm -hmm. Like integrity is what matters. Something like that. You're like, oh, come on, man. Like, let's, all right. Um, so yeah. So I just, you know, the kind of, and I say this as someone who came from like, well, okay. What makes me, what unnerves me in succession is whenever they mention where I grew up, which is Marin County, California, which is an extremely rich part of our country. Um, Naomi flew out from Mill Valley. That's where I grew up in Marin County, uh, in California. And they've also mentioned Sausalito. They just keep mentioning Marin, like as obviously like someone in the writer's room is either from there or just like knows that like, let's keep going back to this one section of the country as this embodiment of, um, like, West Coast liberal wealth, I guess, is sort of like a thing. Like we're really progressive. Like we're right across the bay from Berkeley. Like we get it. We like, we, we believe in progressive politics, but <laughs> like Rosa doesn't get to bring the roast to the table. So like that's just all part of it. Um, and then Rhea, uh, Rhea gets exactly what she wants, which is, um, this deal. She wants this deal. She wants the money from this deal. Um, while playing this part where she plays this part of like, um, really getting her hits in on, um, ATN on, on Waystar Royco and like on their politics and to the very end, she's like pushing the financials and stuff like that. But she, she plays it all. Perfectly. Also, Holly Hunter is styled exactly like my mother in this episode, so it's creeping me out. But, um, you know, it's, it's a perfect sort of, uh, another portrait of, of another kind of player in all of this. You know? Yeah. I mean, there's such an interesting dynamic in this episode with Rhea and, uh, and Nan, uh, who represent, you know, nominally, um, you know, our side of things, the, the sort of more, you know, progressive and, 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 you know, they hate the, all this kind of Fox News stand and thing. Um, and we, but we saw last week, um, when we first met Rhea that she's sort of amused by the, you know, the Romanness of, of the Roy family. And, and I think, I, I don't think Nan is as amused by it, but, uh, clearly they're, they're not, she's not so repulsed that she won't work with them. Uh, or sell her company to them. She's kind of choosing to trust them, like uh, that they won't, you know, ruin her legacy, her family legacy, um, which is interesting. And I think that it's interesting that the, the way the episode is written and directed and acted and the way that I processed the episode, it's like, why am I not rooting for them? Like, why am I mm -hmm. sort of like, why am I on the Roy side? Why am I rolling my eyes at the Pierce's and not at the Roy's? And I think it's partly out of this sort of, in in some senses, the purity of the Roy's presence were like, they just like fuck up that dinner and they're terrible and they're sniping at each other. They just cannot help themselves. But at the very least, they aren't really putting on airs, you know, even in like yeah. Connor's stupid politics. Like it's, I'm not saying that he's right. And I'm not sort of trying to like honor the sort of simplicity of a, of a Trumpian ideal, but like it's, it's at least less adorned in pretension, I guess. Um, which, you know, I think in a very class conscious world, uh, we're all very attuned to that, you know, oh, they think they're better than me or they're putting on airs or whatever, you know, and the Roy's for all of their many, many evils don't do that. And the Pierce's very much do. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really yeah. interesting way that the show makes us kind of confront that, 
dynamic, but also I, I, I like that the show reminds us that pretty much all very rich people are bad, no matter what side of things they're yeah. on. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, like, so you're, you're a theater major and I'm an English major. And like, there are, there are parts of me that like thrill to the idea of like, instead of, instead of saying grace, we say a snippet from Richard the second or like, you know, whatever it is. Like, that's, I kind of, I, on the one hand, I love that. And then I also am like, oh, but it's so gross. Oh, but it's so great. At the same time, I have this like really weird relationship with it. Um, and I think that one of the best embodiments of that is when, Rhea, Rhea playing her own part that she plays to sort of curry favor with Nan when, um, they're talking about Sandy and Stewie's takeover and how it's not real. And Rhea goes, Oh, a Potemkin pillage. And they have this like disgusting laugh over that joke. And I'm just like, Oh my God. I, I love it and I hate it. And it's just, it makes me look at myself and feel, uh, bad. Yeah. Well, I, I love the way that, you know, Rhea, when we met her last week, she comes in and she's like, you know, she gives, she gives the family's official line, which is a hard no. But then, you know, she, she listens and she, and she, she appeals to, uh, you know, the Roy's in a sort of like collegial level in a sense. But then in this episode, when she's in the presence of the family, it's a totally different ballgame. And, yeah. and she's looking at the Roy's as if to be like, I know that I was singing a different tune when we last saw each other, but like, this is how it is now with this situation. You know, um, I think that's a really well realized, um, ca- calibration in that character. Um, that brings us to Connor Roy, uh, surprisingly high on the list because even though he starts, uh, he's paired with, uh, Mark Lynn Baker's character, whose first name I can't remember, but he's a, he's the political Pierce who works for the Brookings Institution and, uh, Institute. And, um, he, uh, you know, they sort of collapse. I mean, everything. They must have had so much fun writing this episode. Um, but sort of every, everything that, uh, this Pierce character says, Don Quixote of Iowa tilting at straw poles. Like yeah. it's just, <laughs> it's so, it's so the worst. It's like NPR weekend, uh, programming bad, but like I listen to NPR weekend programming. So I'm like, I'm here for it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but, but they, they clash, they clash. And then, you know, the morning after Connor's talking to Frank and he's like, well, I opened a bottle of port and I got tipsy and offered in the state department. So I actually <laughs> think I did okay. Um, so, um, yeah, so yeah he, Connor, he, Connor did his job in the end. And when they're leaving, when the, you know, everyone's out in the lawn and the, the Roy's are going to their helicopters, there is like an affectionate kind of back pat that Connor yeah. and Marklin Baker do. That's really funny. Um, and I think again, that's an indication of like, uh, I think I was saying this last week about like, you know, Rhea or when it, whoever else gets close to these people, the politics blur. And like, so here are these two guys who are in theory diametrically opposed to one another politically. And yet they had a bottle of port and they were in a big mansion that, you know, they like being in mansions and now, oh, they're like simpatico and, now, you know, like, it, there's some, like, State Department thing where, so it's, like, Connor kind of, like, throwing out his politics, too, just because, like, they're the old boys in the room together, you know? Um, and I think that that is all too believable. Absolutely. Um, all right. Then the, um, we have Greg really quickly. We're just going to mention Greg. He's barely in this episode, but he shows up right at the end. Uh, and, you know, so he gets, 
he gets some points just by dint of like ha- getting to avoid this weekend <laughs> entirely, right? So he doesn't uh, yeah, have to make any sure. moves. Um, but also the way he comes in, the way he talks to everyone, and the way he is always deferential to Marsha is yes. something that I like always notice about Greg and think is interesting and smart of him. So you know. absolutely, I love that. That I love that little beat where he's you know he asks her how she's doing, and, and you never yeah. see anyone ask Marsha how she's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's a nice little detail. Yeah, and something that I think uh I neglected to mention last week is Sid when when Sid is talking to Greg, she says, "You're a smart one, aren't you? We should talk." And like if Sid Peach thinks you're smart, like yeah. you you're smart. So, there you go. Um all right, Roman Roy uh you know, um the reason he's so low is he's brought low by this announcement about Shiv. Whether or not this Shiv thing uh survives the episode, which it doesn't seem to, but he does at one point at dinner say, like, my my life is over, you know, like I didn't know and what the fuck. And um so, which so is there's Roman. Interesting because like, did he really think he was ever gonna get it? You know? Um I, I find that sort of delusion um kind of curious. But um but yeah, but you know, he did he got his 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 uh his jollies, at least after the news. Absolutely. Absolutely. Once again, got, and, and I really like that morning after thing where he's like, where Tom's like, did anyone get up to anything naughty last yeah. night? And Roman says exactly what happened. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And Jerry responds really well to it. I'm, I'm really excited to see how all of that unfolds. The, the, I hope it goes on forever. The, the, the late summer's most unexpected romance. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. Hot, hot girl summer. Jerry's having her hot girl summer. Good for her. Good times. Good for her. Um, all right. Number eight, Tom. So Tom, Tom is in a terrible position this weekend, right? Because, uh, Logan says right off the bat, the same thing to Tom that Tom has often said to Greg, which is like, we're going to kick you around to make ourselves look good. You have to wear the the hair shirt. Yeah. Yeah, you have to wear the hair shirt. You're the straw man. And Tom's like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. But like, could it be pissing? And he's like, oh, I hear what you're saying, but no. Um, and so Tom, like, you know, he's like, oh, here I am, resident right wing, like, ape and, you know, here I am. Oh, I'm, I'm so bad. Like, all sorts of stuff like that. But what's even more scary for Tom is this idea as if, like, if Shiv has irrevocably fucked up, which maybe she has, and we will talk about that in a second, he has this line where he's like, I'm not sure how far your father's affection for me extends beyond his affection for you. So if you're out, I am out. And what the fuck? Well, look you how know? easily so. he got tossed out of the room, or, you know, metaphorically, when they're trying to make the deal. Oh, that's not a right. problem. She's like, that guy can't run my... And he's like, oh, no, that's fine. Like, like just like... And, and you see Shiv's expression shift a little bit. Um, yeah. you know, it's just like, yeah, Tom is, is not, uh, by any means, uh, and maybe never has been secure in that world. Yeah. So, um, I, but I do want to give shout out to Tom for a couple things. One is when he's trying awkwardly to change the conversation at the table and he goes, ah, oh, spinach, king of leaves, like <laughs> just randomly. And then also when Shiv comes back to the room and she's like, is there any booze? And he goes, no, just Emily Dickinson and low thread, uh, count sheets. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> just like so good. So, um, yeah, so that's Tom on the back foot, which brings us to our loser of the week, which is poor Siobhan. Um, how did Siobhan get here, Richard? I don't want to say hubris, though maybe there was a little of that. Uh, I think it was just the simple mistake of taking her father genuinely. You know, I think that none of these kids or grown kids ever do, but once in a while, 
they kind of fool themselves into thinking that, you know, and, and granted, in her defense, when she was offered this, she was like, is this real? Is this real? She asked that like 40 times in the first episode. Oh, so many times. Um, but like, so she, she knew, she knew to doubt her instinct was right, of course. But then she let herself get washed, you know, swept away by the fantasy and she threw her political ambitions out the window and so, in, in, in so doing, maybe her political principles, blah, blah, blah. And now she finds herself just another sort of victim of Logan's tyrannical vanity. Yeah, it's uh, like that. You mentioned that expression she gets on her face when Tom is just immediately tossed out. And she like she has this look like, yep, I will. I will bury everyone for this thing that I want. If I just keep still, maybe I can still get this thing that I really, really want. And for her to say that, I really, really want this to Tom is um a degree of vulnerability I feel like we've never seen from her. Um and and just um and a degree of I want I guess it's like it's female ambition which reads differently than male ambition and so when we see the like I want from Roman or from Kendall you're just sort of like yeah of course those boys want their father's company but to hear his daughter say it it means something else unfortunately in our society and um and she plays it so well you know it's just a re- it's a real moment when she goes I really want this you know so. yeah um, yeah, it's interesting because you get the feeling like uh, I, what I love is the scene where she comes back to the room with Tom and she's just like shell shocked and she says stuff like I fucked it or whatever it is. But like, like she can't believe her own blunder. She's such a political mover. She knows the moves and she just said this thing at the dinner table. Like, she, I don't think she said it without any knowledge of like, this could be a fuck up because like. You know, she's not like self-assured and then he pulls the rug out. She's like awkward and unsure the whole time, you know? And so it's just a fascinating move. Um, it's interesting to rewatch this episode and note that it starts like on her face in the elevator. Like watching this episode, knowing it's like the fall of Shiv, uh, if indeed it is the end of Shiv, uh, in this particular arc. So, um, so Logan gets what he wants, which is she, you know, he, he wanted her away from Gil. He, she was like blackmailing him and all this sort of stuff like that. And he crushed her in the span of like four episodes. Yeah. <laughs> like so quickly. And, and her kind of disbelief about it, it is a good illustration of the radioactivity of this nexus of power. And, and, and it's like the, it's the ring from Lord of the Rings. It, 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 it the, the, the more you wear it or, you know, or are near it, the kind of crazier you go and the more kind of, you know, it's monomaniacal, like, you know, singular ambition you become. And then when it's sort of like snatched away and you cut, you come to, you're like, wait, what was I doing? How, what was I, why was I thinking like that and acting like that? And I think that that's, you know, Shiv having that, it maybe just temporary sort of aha moment of like, Oh, it was interesting. I like that a lot. Um, all right. So before we wrap up, uh, really quickly, what do you want Shiv to do next? Well, um, I, I guess maybe try to like pull the strings from a different angle or pull different strings. Like maybe that means going in back into the political arena or whatnot, but like, I don't know if narratively drama wise, like it would be that interesting to see her do more of the vying for the thing that was promised to her. Um, but then again, I have faith that uh, the show can figure out 
how to do that if that's what they want to do. I I think maybe the reason why her ex departure from Gil was so awkward is to sort of burn that bridge. Like she can't go back to Gil at right. this point, right? It seems like. Um, but she could me, work for Connor. <laughs> I, I was I was gonna say maybe she like aligns herself with Sandy and Stewie, who are who are still trying to do the takeover. Right. Um, or she gets her brother elected president, which is what I think is gonna happen. So. Yeah. We'll see. Um, Siobhan could be chief of staff for her brother and, and like affect, maybe effectively like sort of shadow, shadow run the country. Why not? Siobhan, we're rooting for you. Uh, we are thrilled to welcome to the Still Watching podcast, uh, an actress who has screen and stage credits a mile long, the incredible J. Smith Cameron, uh, here to talk about her work as the character of Jerry, who's having a very interesting season indeed, had a very interesting time uh, in this episode. So here is J. Smith Cameron to talk about uh, the women of succession and Jerry and Roman, everyone's favorite new power couple. I, I know you've already given several interviews about last week's episode in terms of uh, how you reacted when you found out what the nature of Roman and Jerry's <laughs> relationship, uh, how it was taking. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, when you found out, if you found out at that time, it wasn't just going to be one scene, but something of an ongoing, at least multi-episode uh, relationship between them. I sort of found out on the set of during 201 that, there was, there was something, um, coming down the pike between Jerry and Roman. And, but as to the nature of it, I didn't know specifically because he has this, you know, the whole idea that he has all these gorgeous girlfriends, but he can't quite, you know, he can't quite, uh, carry through. And, you know, he had the sexy male trainer for a while and that came to nothing. And, you know, he, I don't know if you remember that in season one, he had, Oh yeah, you know, one-on-one workouts with a sexy, hot, you know, gay guy. I don't know if the trainer was gay, but you know that that was, you know, sort of a frisson between them. You know, I've been around the block on on TV shows before, um, either as leads or supporting characters. You you don't you don't take it for granted. It does go on. I don't want to. I I mean, you have to be careful about a spoiler. It does sure. it does continue to unfold. But um, I, but again, I don't know. I don't know how they've edited. I mean, we did shoot some other scenes. I don't know. I don't know how it, what, what will make the cut. And, and even, you know, as I've said before, even when the scenes that, that are, have made it into two and three and four of this season, I, I never know which takes they're going to choose. So it's, I always watch it like a little bit with my own jaw dropped because, you know, we, we, in, in 205, for instance, that was a particularly crazy, scene to navigate and we did it all kinds of different ways we did each moment several different ways there would be times when i'd be very bossy with him and times when i'd be kind of shy with him or shocked or you know and it would change on a dime like in within any one take of the scene so i thought to myself i wonder when they're cutting together jerry's side of this conversation which take from which which pass at the scene they'll use and that's that's always the case but when you have storylines like this one it's really it really comes into play where you're like, wow, you could tell 
a variety of different stories by the yeah. different ways we've done each line yeah. here, you know. So yeah. um, that is, I am sitting on the edge of my seat as well. <laughs> right. And so, you know, in episode five here, you have an escalation of um, what we saw in episode four in terms of like, this is, I, you know, the first time that they are trying out this dynamic in person, even though there winds up being a door between them, you know, there's still more physical closeness than their, than their phone affair. Um, you know, you've known, you know, you've known Kieran for so long. What was it like, you know, filming this first scene where you're doing this kind of thing face to face? You know, he is so, um, he's so, he's such a, uh, facile, and I mean that in the, in the best possible way. He's such a, um, free, uninhibited actor and not, doesn't ever judge his character or anybody's character. He, he's a really, He's a he's got a really good brain and he's a really good, really natural, really spontaneous actor. And he can be really accurate about very specific, you know, um, emotions. And, you know, he doesn't have the same sort of pathos that the Kendall character has so far in the story. Or we haven't seen that, but he's totally capable of it. Like he's really he's a really um, impressive actor. So he was he was very free. But then it's Roman who's sort of driving it. Like, it's Roman who wants to have those interactions. Jerry, we still don't really know how Jerry really feels about it. We know what she says and does, but and I was always wondering, like, I wonder how Jesse and Mark and Tony and Georgia and I, all of them, I wonder what how they think I, we know what she does or what she says, but how is she feeling inside? And they were, I think, kind of open to for me to solve that for myself. Does that make sense? Like I might, I might, you know, I might acquiesce with his request in the end, but how do I feel about it? And I think I feel a number of different ways all in a row. So it was really tricky to navigate. And I thought possibly it was more of a question mark for me and my character, maybe than it was for Kieran because Kieran is actually initiating it. I mean, not Kieran. Roman is an, is, right. <laughs> is the, uh, yeah. he, 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 he comes looking for that. So he knows what he has to play in the scene. He knows what his intention is. You know, as I thought when I was working on it, why don't I just kick him out? I don't kick him out, but I don't quite approve of it either. So I think the more interesting thing, but infinitely harder to play is just moment to moment being like, um, 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 Okay, uh, so no, that's too far. Um, I don't know. Get get in the bathroom. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> this thinking on the balls of your feet, and and it's still amazing to me, like to find which takes they'll use of these little micro beats with um with succession with the amount of uh, you know ad lib or different approaches that you are given the the freedom to do on the show. Um, uh, yeah, I imagine that there are more surprises you would find in the edit um, than on an, a different project, a more rigid project. And um, I'm curious, do you recall like a a moment of surprise when you're sitting down on Sunday night to watch it for yourself and you're like, oh, they went with that. Okay, definitely all the time, all the time, and with and with. Even like scenes, especially it's really fun because scenes that, not, that Jerry's not in and I read them and I read and you read the rewrites when they come in. But if you're not on set or even if you are on set when they're doing it and you see them do it different ways, it's completely fascinating to find out what is happening meanwhile 
it's just jammed with interesting psychological facets. And on the one hand, being very cold and objective and pointing out what asses all these characters are. <laughs> but at the other, on the other hand, really letting them be human beings, not judging them too much. Like Tom, for instance, a very sensitive soul in his own horrible way. Or Greg, you know, like they're like, like they have, and certainly can't all of them have these like very extremely vulnerable moments. I mean, Shiv this season has some incredibly, she's always such an unflappable character, Shiv, and she's so vulnerable in this season at times because she's daring to allow herself Want. to think. Yeah. You know, there's be ambitious. This, oh. Yeah. There's this moment in this episode, uh, where, you know, before things go completely sideways for her in episode five, where she just says, like, I really want this to Tom in a, in a uh-huh. tone of voice. Yeah. I don't think we've heard Sarah use for that character. And it's devastating to watch what happens to her in episode. Oh five. my God. So, Isn't it? Yeah. It's devastating. Yeah. And it's so that whole scene, are you, do you mean around the table particularly? Or yeah. That, that scene is so cringy and shocking and dangerous. And, that is the essence of our, that our show, I think. That sort of um, overlapping tumble of, you know, horror, where all these really powerful people are jockeying for this all, supremely powerful person to allow them to exist. <laughs> like it's just this shocking, you know, scramble for all these characters to try to stay on the merry-go-round. That is Logan Royce. One of my favorite comparisons that I saw you make uh, elsewhere is you you were talking about sort of the the Greek mythological feeling of this story, which is certainly true. And I think you compared Logan to Zeus and maybe Marcia to Hera or something like that. Zeus and Hera. But I'm right. curious if yeah. you know if if there's Zeus and Hera, wh- where does a Jerry fit in? Like who is Jerry in in that sort of Greek mythological world? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I would I would say she is an Athena type, but Ooh. so is Shiv. So, I, I mean, I would say, yeah, that she's kind of a yeah. thinker and uh, a soldier, you know, a warrior in a way. Um, uh, but I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know specifically how it would sure break enough. down. But I, I love that. I mean, I like that analogy of them being Greek gods and goddesses because they're the Greek gods and goddesses are so horrible. They're all, they all have terrible downsides to their nature. Yeah. Like they're not, they're not better. They don't transcend human nature. They're, they, they magnify it. It's like they each, they each have some sliver of, of human nature. That's horrible just to an egregious extent. And they sort of glorify it. So it's, that's the nature of our show. It glorifies these like powerful people with these horrible failings not glorify them. Like I don't think that for one minute you ever get the feeling that the show celebrates who they are rather they have fun exposing how awful they are. I mean, I think it definitely has that taste to it, but it's really like you see these characters just, you know, revel in revealing their horribleness (laughs) (laughs) in an unchecked way. And there's something, um, I think cathartic about watching that because uh, it's so awful in real life when powerful people exploit their power that, so it's fun to watch these powerful people um, try and fail or, or flounder 
don't you think? I mean, I think that's part yeah. of our success of this. We like calling it hate hate watching the rich. Um, is is uh something hate that we call it right? But also, as you say, like then you find find yourself feeling for a Kendall or a Tom, and and you're surprised to find yourself having any yeah. tenderness for them since they're such monsters sometimes. So it's interesting. I know. Um, yeah, you. Uh, I'm curious. You know, given your your history in the theater, are you the kind of performer who likes to um develop a full you know, sort of background story history for your characters. I sure am. But this one is a real challenge because any TV show is like that, really, because you can be, you know, on a show for four seasons and then halfway through the fourth season, find out uh, that there's something in her past that they decided to write in that they had no idea, you know, so it's, it's, it kind of, you have to be, you have to have kind of sea legs to be in a TV show. So you do that homework, but you have to be willing to be like, oh, okay, strike that. Now we know right. this about Jerry, or now we know this about Roman, or now we know that, you know. And I, and I think that's, it's particularly true for supporting characters because we do, in the end, have to kind of serve the storyline in a different way. Like, we're kind of there to, you know, a lot of, a lot of my work on the show is, is exposition, frankly, like just explaining what we're up against as a corporation. You know, when I did, when I first had this job, it was sort of, I didn't, I wasn't a regular character. I had a sort of mini contract to be in the first, to be in episodes 102 through 106, through the, through the um, attempted coup in season right. one. And with no, with a possibly, possibly she might, be needed in nine and 10 uh, if she's available kind of thing. And and then they kept writing me in, but I thought, I think that was because they didn't know whether Jerry was one of the people going to be fired at the end of <laughs> the tour. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm wondering if you can share, I mean, uh, knowing, knowing that it might change uh, based on what the writers decide, uh, if you can share what your story is in your head of how Jerry got involved in, in Waystar Royco in the first place, like how long she's known Logan, um, how that all um, well, I think just rough. I think just roughly. I think she's worked uh, for for decades for him, and worked her way up to general counsel. And then her, she's a widow. And in the in one o two, I talk about how my husband, whose name was Baird, I believe, who was along with me, um, godparents to Shiv. I thought to myself that maybe my husband who perhaps was older than me was maybe more of an age with Logan was a more senior executive. And that as his wife, I kind of like how that often is in politics, like when a Senator passes away or something and the wife kind of takes on some of their duties. I felt like maybe she was a lawyer on the staff and worked her way up and that there was maybe a big shift when he died. I remember when I, I have a, I usually wear my own wedding ring in shows and I thought, oh. oh, I can just wear my ring. So I just kept my ring on the first day and they came running up to me and they're like, you have to take your wedding ring off. And then you can, like a lot of people who've been married a long time, but you can kind of see, even when my ring's off, you can kind of see where it usually lives. It's like kind of a knot <laughs> right. there. So dent, they had to yeah. bring me like a big chunky, yeah, a little dent, right? <laughs> so I, especially if, especially if it's right away, like in, if you don't have time for the, you know, uh, for your finger to kind of 
bounce back. So they, yeah. so they came, they ran and brought me like a chunky cocktail ring to hide that line. And then that became a signature thing when, when there was more Jerry and more, that's one thing that kind of changed from season one to season two is Michelle and Matlin and I began to think of Jerry, not so much as just always in the work uniform, the Brooks brothers, you know, off the rack, but, but lovely, you know, but off the rack kind of go to corporate outfit. But now like in season two, I have much more fashionable. Um, I have different, there's more moods to Jerry's wardrobe and it's in mom. And then this year I have like a little wardrobe of chunky cocktail rings. And that's sort of fun to, to sort of watch the costume plot of Jerry's jewelry. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I'm going to I'm start tracking those rings. Um, you, you said that you're not sure um, that Jerry is just sort of like living moment to moment with this Roman thing and trying to figure out how she feels about it in the moment. Um, but uh-huh. more broadly speaking, what do you think Jerry wants more broadly speaking, like career wise, anything wise? And then, you know, what do you want for her um, as an actor? Well, that is a really good question. Like the rest of the pack, I think Jerry would like to, to figure into the succession. Um, but I think more than the others, I think she is a realist who really sees not only that Roman, I mean that, excuse me, that Logan is not, going to go gently into that good night. You know what I mean? She's not going to give up the reins of power without a fight. And I don't think she would think to fight him. So I think she, I'm, I'm not sure. I just think she's too crafty for that, but that's the, her main, her main skill is that she's very good at, at reading that. And I think she also, I mean, by my observation from my dialogue in the past, I think she really gets that, Logan's business moves are often outrageous and shouldn't work, but by the force of his, by the force of nature that he is and by his track record, crazy ideas he has sometimes work because people, businessmen have come to, and banks have come to have confidence in him because his track record. So crazy things like the Pierce acquisition, I know on paper that there's no way that should work. But I think when push comes to shove, Jerry has the sense to go like, well, but if you look at the big long term, you know, that the kids are always thinking that he's not up, that he's not up to speed with modern times and what he wants to invest with and that he's always doing, you know, buying local news channels and not thinking digitally and so forth and so forth. But, you know, I think Jerry sees that, well, say what you will, if you look at his track record, he is he's got this uniquely successful trajectory and like the banks, I think she kind of continues to bet on him. And, and uh, with the exception at the beginning of season one, when we thought he had, when he had a stroke and we didn't know if he was of sound mind. And that yeah. continues to be a, somewhat of a question mark because he does such, he is so volatile and he does such, he has such crazy ambitions that, he's a little bit King Learish and we don't know how mad he is. Right. But, right. Right. Yeah. Right. But, um, but, but within that of the characters, I think Jerry is like of the school of thought, well, you've got to hand it to him. Like he's got some crazy ideas, but he's the one person on earth to pull them off if anyone can. So even though she might have her own agenda, I think she's, 
smart enough to know which horse to bet on in that group. And, you know, up until quite recently, I, I personally, me as an actor, I didn't really um, indulge in thinking of her future that much because, as I said, I started out doing four episodes. And then right. about this time last, you know, last with the, you know, when they picked up the show for season two and made me a regular, then I was like, oh, that's nice. But I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't actually have any sense of to project how involved I'd be. So um, I do think she's ambitious, but she's too crafty to want to inherit the company when it's on shaky ground, when it's in the middle of a takeover, when it's in debt, when, you know, I think she's, um, and also, you know, I think she's already a huge success. She makes a, a ton of money and she's very influential. So I think she's also been around long enough to know, you know, that there's a, the power behind the throne is very powerful. So, you know, that whereas the, the throne itself is, is very vulnerable. So I don't know. I mean, that's a really good question. And one I haven't totally answered for myself, but I, I do think that, I mean, one, one way the Roman Jerry Alliance could play out is that suddenly their ambitions are more credible because together they're, Everyone needs a support uh, person in this particular battle, it feels like. You know, if you're operating alone, I'm worried for you um, in right. possession. So, yeah. And and they, and Tendal doesn't, Tendal and, and Shiv do not, they have enough hubris to not think they need support from the others, you know? And yeah. and I think Roman is maybe smarter than people have given him credit to be, you know, you know, He's clever, but maybe he's actually wiser than we've given him credit, or he's becoming wise, sort of as the season unfolds. He's kind of wising up, or I think he is. I, I know that you, when you auditioned, um, the character was originally sketched out to be male, uh, G-E-R-R-Y versus G-E-R-R-I. Um, other than that last vowel changing, um, how was the character... <laughs> changed from when you auditioned to when you were playing it as female were there were there or was it just left the same and then left up to you to sort of um put your your spin on it um you know i don't think it i first of all i think when i auditioned they hadn't really written jerry yet that they had known that there was a general counsel and that I feel like they knew there was going to be a Frank and they knew there was going to be a Jerry and they knew there was going to be a Carl and they didn't really know about, you know, that they knew there'd be other characters like that too, but they didn't know who, who was who, because in my audition sides, there were whole, there were some lines that ended up being Frank's. So I think they, they were beginning to craft that about the time I got cast. And I think, you know, it's, to their credit that they, it dawned on them. I mean, a lot of, a lot of these big conglomerates do have female general counsels. So I think they thought, Oh, that's, that's a great opportunity to hire a woman. Um, and, uh, I think that was clever on their part. And I think that's also an interesting thing about these women who have these high positions in business is they have to be quite, they have to have a lot of guts and, um, so I think that they, there is a little bit of being able to be one of the guys anyway at work, kind of 
Right. You know, there was a lot in season one of people, those brothers, not just the brothers, all the guys just have this potty mouth and Jerry just rolls her eyes. Like she doesn't, you know, she, she can take it. So I think that um, really not that much. I think that I don't know that it was that it changed hugely um, in the way they wrote it, because at that point there was, we didn't see anything of her personal life. Right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So little things like we have the little interesting things come up where, when we were going to see inside Jerry's apartment, just right. what would her decor be like? And they were um, very interested in my two cents about that. So I thought to myself, Hmm, I think she is at work all the time, but she has a lot of money. I think she has a, an apartment that's designed entirely to the, with, within an inch of its life by someone with really good taste. And right. somebody comes in and cleans every day, like, just like a hotel almost. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. that, you know, she probably has downsized in terms of space from wherever she lived with her husband when she was married. And, and uh, I remember having, you know, thoughts about, you know, I mean, in the past when I've had thoughts about her backstory, um, occasionally Jesse will be like, Hmm, that's interesting. Let's put, put a pen in it. Let's don't put too fine a point. Let's not make up our mind about this or that yet because it gives us more elbow room. So I think that, you know, it's a evolving project who she is. Yeah. It makes it really fun. It's just stressful <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then my, and then my last question is, um, when when I was first recommending the show in season one to people, a barrier of entry for some people was, uh, you know, they thought, oh, this is just another show about rich white men behaving badly, like emphasis on the men. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I'm interested in that. Um, and then I was making the case for what I thought were incredibly interesting and, and complex female characters in the show. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you've got even more opportunity in this season with the addition of like Holly and Cherry and all this, um, these great actresses coming in and chewing up uh, these roles. But then you also have a number of women in the writers' room, which I think just makes a huge difference. Absolutely, uh, to I what we see like on screen. Pretty much fifty-fifty, which is incredible. So I was just wondering if if you could talk about sort of, um, yeah, the 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 value of having those incredibly intelligent women in the in the Succession writers' room, and then what it's been like to have even more women to play with in season two. Oh, well, it's fantastic, uh, obviously. And I think, you know, I think one of the, one of the, um, defining qualities of the show of what it's about is I think it skewers the patriarchy very deliberately. Like it shows these kind of really bloated egos of, of these powerful men. And then it shows these extremely deft, crafty women, um, uh, making very careful but decisive steps forward. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's maybe in the grand scheme of things, a big unfolding plot of its own. Um, I can't imagine. I don't know. I have no idea what the big overall story is going to be. I, I, and I'm sincere about that. I don't, I really don't know. I don't want to know, uh, you know, sure. yeah. what the, what the big, big overarching story will be. But um, I think it seems to me as if it's very deliberately like um, 
like you do see these like brilliant female characters kind of steadfastly pressing through the bullshit, like in a stealthy kind of way. Like, you know, even Marsha is very, you know, Mm -hmm. um, she's not in, she's not a, she's not a business person in the story, but she is very, um, she handles, she handles her side of things very carefully and very cunningly um, in an impressive way. And there's, I don't know of a single, I mean, I guess Willa is sort of a Liberty gibbet, but certainly Tabitha, his um, Roman's girlfriend, um, uh, you know, Holly's character, Cherry's character, um, totally Sarah's character. They're all so fierce and so intelligent. They're much more impressive. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the guys are the ones that are really fucked up, you know. Um, so it's real. I mean, I I feel like if you look carefully, it's very much the opposite of being about. I mean, it it is about them throwing their weight around the men, but it's they're they're not totally successfully throwing their weight around. I love you know? that, and yeah, and I kind of want the phrase "steadfastly pressing through the bullshit" like on a t shirt or an inspirational poster <laughs> uh, for myself. Hey, that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time and for this great Oh, I really enjoyed this. I I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. All right. So that is it for us this week. We will be back with episode six, um, which I don't even know the title of yet. Um, until we return, Richard, where can people find you? Oh, probably just tidying up one of the 17 bedrooms in my weird little house. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be tweeting at Rylas and writing for VF.com. Uh, Joanna, where will you be until next week? Um, I'll be mixing myself a, I believe it's called a break bumper, uh, which is, oh, which I stole from Teddy Roosevelt's valet's <laughs> wallet, the recipe for. Um, so cheers to that. Um, or you can find me on vanityfair.com or tweeting at Joe wrote this and we will see you next time. Can't get enough of Bachelor Nation? Enter Betch's hilarious Bachelor recap podcast, The Bachelor. Each week, hosts Kay Brown and me, Jared Freed, recap the latest episodes of The Bachelor and make fun of all the ridiculous things the contestants say and do. Because honestly, why else watch the show if not for the fun commentary? Listeners have called The Bachelor the much-needed humor and commiseration they want after watching the show. Listen to The Bachelor podcast now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Lale Aracoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or 
a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Join me, Lale Arakopli, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs>